I'm Jamie Hurst, and for the MSU Denver Alumni Association, we're excited to bring you Bird Talk, a podcast about our alumni, their careers, and their lives. Honestly, everyone's gay. Everyone's gay. <laughs> Actually, I changed my mind. That's the billboard piece that I would be. Everyone's gay. <laughs> Just a little. Just a little. Everyone's a little bit. <laughs> Welcome to Bird Talk. I'm Jamie Hurst, excited to bring another episode today featuring one of our alumni from 2017, a master's alumni. We're excited to talk to our first guest uh, that went through a graduate program here. So Brie Dovez, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. So as we've kind of talked about, you know, this podcast is really about taking a look at our alums, how you got here, then the role MSU Denver played in helping to kind of push you to where you're at now, and then an opportunity to hear about what you're doing now and the work that you're doing in the city, in the community, in the state. Uh, even at the national level, right? Um, Because I think one of the things we constantly strive for here at MSU Denver is to bring home that fact that we've got 105,000 alums, 65,000 of them are living right here. They're doing incredible work. We are at the heart of the city and people need to hear more of those stories. They Mm. need to understand, right? Tell them, Jamie. (laughs) So that's what we're doing with this podcast and we're so excited to have you here today. So thanks for joining. Yeah, thanks for having me. Awesome. Well, let's just start from the top. What brought you here? How'd you get to MSU Denver? Why Mm. MSU Denver? Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> Let's get started there. <laughs> so I've lived in De- like uh, Colorado my whole life. I grew up in Castle Rock and like Larkspur, Sedalia kind of areas. So I have known about MSU Denver since before I was a university and like all of those things. Watched it transform into what it is now. When I was in my undergrad program, I was looking at clinical psychology programs. I really don't like that I have to choose whether I want to do systemic work or clinical work yeah. and that they it feels like they're also interconnected to me that how I want a program that can actually like do both um, or would allow me the flexibility in the future to do both. I graduated early from my undergrad so it was like in my second year of college beginning of that um, I was like deciding on grad school stuff and I, no one in my family has ever gone to grad school. I didn't even know what grad school was sure. at all. <laughs> And, a lot of group work. Yeah, truly. <laughs> I learned. I learned real quick what it is. Yeah, so I really, truly didn't know anything about it. And then my statistics professor, um, because I'm also not great at math, so mm-hmm. I was in her office hours regularly. She was like, yeah, why don't you be a social worker? That sounds like what you want to be. And I was like, what's social work? That's what Child Protective Services right. is, and that's all I know about it. Then I went home and looked it up, and I was like, oh, that, Th- this that is, what I is want. <laughs> exactly what I want to do. And so then I was looking at DU, CSU, and here, and I was like, no way, I'm going to DU. <laughs> so see, MSU is going to be it for me. That's awesome. Yeah. So, Brie, you're now the founder and executive director of a nonprofit, Joy is a Resistance, that supports LGBTQ youth in Colorado and recognized recently as a 10 under 10 award winner for that work that you're doing here at MSU Denver. Um, so you come to MSU Denver, you're embarking on this master's program. What were some of your takeaways from that? Like what what was that experience and how was it different from maybe the perceived notions that you had, especially not even knowing that social work was the thing that you were looking for? Mm-hmm. Now all of a sudden you arrive on campus and you're in the heart of it. Like what, what did that feel like? It felt really intimidating and also super exciting. And once I was here and started the classes and was learning from the people, my classmates and like the professors, I felt so excited that there was finally a space to talk about these things that have been so heavy on my mind and heart for my whole life. And nobody wanted to talk about these things. Like nobody wants to talk about the harm, the ugly things, the like pieces um, of people who are marginalized Mm -hmm. and how we actually address those things. To be in a room full of people who like we didn't even have to, we didn't have to start there, right? We could start with, okay, so what are we going to do about this? Felt so exciting. I would also say that I was 21. Mm-hmm. Yeah, is very that, young. Is that yeah. right? <laughs> I think I was, yeah. I was 20, actually, I think, when I started it. Mm-hmm. And about to turn 21. And I remember, like, sitting in class and being, like, somebody was handing out, like, a <laughs> invite to, mm-hmm. like, a bar thing. And I was like, shit. <laughs> what am I going to say to these people? Nobody knew that I wasn't, mm-hmm. like, uh, that I was that young. I think I remember feeling how wonderful that I have felt so accepted here, regardless of, like, those pieces, and that uh, we're able to to collaborate really effectively to 
learn all these new things. Like these are hard ass conversations to be yeah. having. And and talking about the issues so openly mm-hmm. in ways that I had not experienced before. It was yeah. always me being like, okay, but can we talk about <clears throat> systemic racism? Okay, can we talk about transphobia? Uh, can we talk about homelessness as like a capitalist ploy? And everyone was like, at mm, CU Boulder, that was not as uh, welcomed sure. in the space sometimes. And I think it, when I got to Metro, it was so much more like, yes. Those Thanks. are the conversations that have to happen, right? When we're talking, we're looking at the world, um, even, you know, at 40 years old, right? I think about my education 20 years ago. It was a different world. It was a different space. It was pre-9-11. We were focused on different things for different reasons, and we're told to focus on things for different reasons. And I think at a young age, we are okay with that. We just say, yep, that's what we're supposed to do. Here's our formula for what it is. As we start to grow and develop, and as we have our own experiences that we bring into things, we say, oh, no, there's actually layers to this conversation, mm-hmm. and we need a safe space to to talk about this. Because there's things that I know that I've experienced that I feel, but there's 20 other people sitting in the classroom that have completely different ones. And I think one of the things I love about this environment, having taken classes here and graduated from here as well, and now teaching in this space, I know that it is like a paramount decision by faculty members here to make sure that that space is exactly what you have in your classroom. A place yeah. where I can bring my experiences, my understanding, my viewpoint, my lenses into a space where we can compare those. And then we can also also talk about it from an academic standpoint of, okay, this is this is what we know. Mm. And that's what academics is great at. They tell us everything we know. Mm. But your point at the very beginning is, what do we do about it? Yep. And that's where the voices in the room matter. And it sounds like you had that experience. I did. Yeah. So we talked about the graduate program as really being, I know I made the joke that it's group work, but that was at least my graduate school experience was like I went from undergrad where it's like study, complete your assignments, do these things less critical conversation um, as a central point of that. And then you got to grad school and it was like, all right, we're just going to sit and we're going to talk about this and now you're going to be in group setting and you're going to do. Mm-hmm. Um, what did that feel like, in, especially in the social work space, where you're dealing with such heavy issues and how to solve them, how to attack them, how to contribute to some sort of solution? Yeah. I think in social work, they really focus on your identities and like how that is. that was like the whole first year basically was who are you? Why do you think the things that you actually think? How does that affect how you interact with other people, with your community, with yourself? How might that affect the work that you do in the future? And that's the whole thing. Mm -hmm. It is literally the most rigorous, like, mirror process. And I think the space that was created in, uh, like, the classrooms that I was in felt very open to conflict, you know, and to moments of, like, hey, what you're saying is really problematic. And here's why. And here's how I think about it. And to be able to nourish that space without us all hating each other by the without end. Without fanning flames, right? Right. Yeah. yeah. And just and being like, yeah, this is where I learned accountability mm-hmm. in a way that was much more public and widespread than I have anywhere else. Sure. You know, because you have that conflict, you also have to have the repair to watch teachers be like, OK, so this harm happened. What are we going to do about this? And I have remembered all of those skills that were not some things that they were teaching us out of the books, but were ways of actually working with groups of people live who are coming from very different spaces Mm -hmm. and talking about things that are very personal and important to each person. Watching them do that and then being like, and also here's a theory, here's where this is all coming from, but like none of that will prepare you for social work. None of these theories will prepare you for what's going to, what you're going to encounter when you leave this space. And I think that's very true. And so it's also like you need to sustain yourself and trust yourself in in this process that is paramount to succeeding as a social worker for a long period of time because otherwise you'll burn out quickly. Real quick, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. So I think I find it so fascinating as you're talking through this about so much of the curriculum and your experience in those first years was identifying who you are and why you think you are who you are. So if you can think back to your time here from when you walked in the door as a 20-year-old <laughs> you know, young, young person, naive, probably just going from place to place to where you are now, um, even through the course of that, that program, did you, did your realization of who you are change in that time? I would say it changes every day. <laughs> sure. <laughs> Has since I was born, yeah. I would probably say. I mean, so like a big part of my work, a big part of who I am is around queerness mm-hmm. and my experience of queerness as a non-binary person, um, as a bisexual person, as someone who's working with the queer community all the time. And what I love so much about 
the queer community is how little investment there is in binaries or systems because they have existed before. Mm-hmm. There's just a knowing in your in my body mm-hmm. and in other queer people who I talk to's bodies that is like it does not have to be this way. Right. The fact that I feel this constrained and suffocated by certain things that were determined way, way, way before I was ever even a thought is really annoying. Right. And unfair and oppressive. Mm-hmm. I don't know how I got there. And that's okay. Well, we, it's funny. We oh, actually, how does my realization change? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I would say, like, on a day-to-day, my gender expression changes all the time. Mm-hmm. Like, one day I am wearing very feminine clothes. Another day I'm wearing super masculine clothes. Sometimes it's both. Sometimes it's neither. And that affects how I interact with the world, how, sure. the intera- how the world interacts with me. I think in social work and what I've learned through that process, I think it started there. Well, it started before then. Mm -hmm. But a point um, that was really important there was to realize, like, it's about humility Mm -hmm. and knowing that, like, you need to be really aware of your strengths and limitations because your strengths will keep you going and your limitations will cause harm. So, like, both of those things are just facts about people, Mm -hmm. no matter who you are. Mm -hmm. And so how are we going to work with that? And then how do you support other people in those interactions with others, and also systemically, how do you address those things? I think that's so profound because we oftentimes, especially just in the society that has been so catalyzed for so long, we spend so much time honing our strengths, focusing on those, making those happen, that we become so, there are crutches for so many things. Mm. Uh, And we don't spend enough time being really open and honest and having the emotional intelligence to say, well, where are my deficits or where are the areas that could could be my Achilles heel, right? Yeah. Um, and I don't know how we change that systemically, right? Other than having conversations like this. I'm so glad to hear that those conversations are happening in classrooms here at MSU Denver. Um, but it's a much larger conversation that needs to happen. And, and it comes with a certain level of vulnerability that I don't think most people want to embrace. Yeah. Because and vulnerability it, means weakness. And it's like, no, it, it doesn't. Yeah. Right? Or that you're unsafe. Right. Right. One or the other. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which are both understandable reasons Yeah, to avoid being vulnerable. And also the alternative is um, being unseen. Mm-hmm. And that hurts in a completely other way. Yeah. So outside of um, kind of the classroom experience, what was happening, what other things did you participate in while you were here, if any, that really helped you kind of fill out um, your professional skills, the things that you want that have helped you, you know, start start an organization from the ground up? Well, I would say that I was not expecting to start an organization at any point through my grad career. So that was never like a thing that I was consciously prepping for that happened later. Mm -hmm. But I do think that the sense of community and depth of relationship that I did build with both classmates and professors served me not only in that time, but still to this day. Mm -hmm. So like an example I'm thinking of is Kathy Phelps, mm-hmm. who is a, a adjunct professor at that time. I don't know. Is she still mm-hmm. I think an adjunct she's still professor? Fully, yeah. oh. <laughs> Shout out to Kathy, <laughs> who runs the Center for Trauma and Resilience. And we, I took her uh, crisis intervention class. And I learned so much from her, in both in crisis intervention and completely differently. That was the first organization I ever saw that functioned in a way that I felt like People actually don't dread coming to work. Right. And that's possible in this economy. Right. In mental health. I don't know. Yeah. To see the way that she was doing things and like taking care of staff and living out these principles of vicarious trauma or supporting the vicarious trauma that clinicians go through was just so inspiring to me. And I thought about that and still think about that all the time. Yeah. Um, She wrote a book called Nonprofit Transformed, which I got a copy of. That, like, really informed the work that I did later. I called her multiple times after that to, as I was thinking about Joya's resistance and doing some design stuff. And then um, Dr. Greyhouse was another one of my professors. And one of the greatest things about Dr. Greyhouse um, is that she was a founding board member um, for Joya's resistance, which was a huge deal to, like, have someone believe in me to the the extent that was like, hey, I have no idea what I'm doing. Should we try this, though? And Dr. Greyhouse and, and I's, like, relationship had continued past the kind of professor work. Mm-hmm. And to, like, know that that community was accessible 
at all times was right. just like it provided a level of like safety and comfort for me. And then I think about probably five or six of my classmates that I could name off the top of my head. I still see them. <laughs> I still see them regularly, whether they are a part of like the joyous resistance experience now or have been at some point or adjacent to that mm-hmm. or kept me sane through like a lot of pieces, you sure. know, it was those depth of relationships were were huge. And Dr. Greyhouse too was like, I will very much never forget one time we were having this conversation where I was like, I don't want to be an individual therapist. Mm-hmm. That sounds terrible. I literally have to listen to people's pro- all day. No. And I can't give them as direct feedback as I would like to. Sure. I was like, no, I'm going to be in the macro space. Mm-hmm. Like uh, that's going to be my lane. And Dr. Grace House was like, how do you think you're going to know how to do those things if you've never done this? You can't do one yeah. Mine just... Don't ask me <laughs> that. Stop. Like, making me question <laughs> all of my, like, things. I was so I was so grounded in that. And I think that that ended up serving me really well. Like, yeah. my first job out of grad school was as a school social worker. And if I hadn't have been open to that individual level, like, we wouldn't have gotten to where we are now. Sure. And even now... I still have eight clinical clients, mm-hmm. and my direct clinical work is one of my favorite things about my work. You yeah. know, like it keeps me going. Sure. And yeah, Dr. Yeah. Greyhouse has to think for that. Yeah, we, we hear that a lot from alums. We spend, you know, all of our time talking with alums, hearing their stories, try to get them back, re-engage with the institution. And whenever we talk about, like, what are those pivotal moments, those memories? I would say nine times out of a ten, it is... It is, this professor did X, Y, Z for me. And what always blows my mind in that space is that it's never anything that happened in the classroom. Yeah. It wasn't like, oh, they helped me understand statistics better. Mm-hmm. It's like, no, they went out of their way to be a board member for my founding organization, to be a mentor for me in the space long after I was a student, long after they have no legal and contractual obligation to do those things. Yeah. <laughs> They're stepping into that space. Um, and I think that is really a testament about just... Um, the quality of faculty that we have here, and the realization that the work of educating um, students and in, in participating in the education and the growth of people, it doesn't end when you walk out right. of a building. It doesn't end when you get your degree hanging on your wall. We are lifelong learners called to have this growth mentality. And when we find people that we can trust in and believe in and that can create those safe spaces for good conversations as well as bad, we can't let those go. Yeah. Um, and I love to hear that you have that relationship still. Yeah, and I think... Kathy Phelps was also like a Zumba teacher. <laughs> so after crisis intervention, that was her next class. And I would go the first time I ever did Zumba. <laughs> and I was like, what? <laughs> this is wild to see someone actually practice what everyone in social work actually talks about all the time. Right. I've never seen a social worker actually be that calm <laughs> in any of the other spaces, internships, previous experiences I've ever seen. And so Kathy was a really big influence for me in that and being like, it is possible. There's a lot to be said about seeing what you're hearing, right? And, and, and you said it earlier when you were talking just even about how, um, to have a values driven organization is obviously something we all want, but then to have the values actually be lived. (laughs) Um, that is a huge jump for a lot of organizations. And I think I would say, especially over the last, you know, three years, four years of where we're really starting to address or at least talk about social unrest, like whatever that might like. We're not addressing it yet, but we're talking about it. But we're seeing that clear demarcation between, oh, yeah, my organization, my company, my school, whatever that case is, we have values. But this is just how we operate because this is how we know how to be effective and efficient. And there is a huge disconnect. And I think the more that we have these types of conversations, the more that we have organizations like yours that are coming to say, no, 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 we have these, but we're also going to live them. And this is what it looks like to have that shared live experience where we have shared values. Um, It just needs to be scaled. And again, I don't know how we do that. We figure that out. We both make a lot of money, Mm -hmm. save a lot of people, help a lot of people. (laughs) But but I think we're, we're seeing that very clearly now that there's a big disconnect. And so it's even more heartwarming to hear that um, our faculty are in that same space, and they're 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 being an example of learning and producing, and not just here's what you need to look out of the book, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's pretty great. So let's talk a little bit about your organization. Um, so Joy as a Resistance started as a nonprofit a couple years ago. Yeah, right now 2020, 2020. So right in the heart of we started everything. piloting at the end of 2019, yep. and then officially went. Uh, post mm-hmm. after the start of the pandemic. Yeah, but you survived through all of that, which was good. That's a hard thing. And we saw a lot of startups with challenges in that space. I mean, established companies having uh, issues in that space. And anytime, I mean, Colorado, what one of the most 
nonprofit per capita spaces. Mm -hmm. <laughs> There's a lot of uh, opportunity here, but also a lot of competition, if you can think about it that way, you know. Um, so what have been some of the keys to success for getting that off the ground and kind of where you're at now? <laughs> the keys to success. Let me outline it really <laughs> clearly. <laughs> I would say being flexible about your definition of success. Sure. Um, and also being a lot more based in reality of like what these things actually take. Sure. I would say some of the pieces that are really integral to like Joya's resistance and why I think it's succeeding so far is really centering humanness in a way that is like, this is messy. We don't know exactly what this is going to look like. And I am unwilling to deviate from centering humanness mm -hmm. across everything, whoever we work with, um, whether that be the parents of this, the people who are in our clinical program, whether that's the teachers and educators who we're providing trainings for, our mentees or our mentors. We are all centered and grounded in our humanness. And if we can create systems that are actually responsive mm -hmm. to that, then that's the way we want to go. So centering humanness, mm -hmm. centering joy, because I um, and am a huge Adrienne Marie Brown fan, uh, fangirl. <laughs> and I think what I really take from that is that like change is everything. Everything will change. Everything does change on a day-to-day -day and on the long mm -hmm. term of things. And so how can we get comfortable responding to change or creating change that we feel like we need to make without burning out, um, losing ourselves, or decentering humanness for anyone who is involved in it? Another thing that I would say is with that also means actually doing it in practice yeah. and codifying it in a way that's not just, okay, we'll figure that out later. So... For us, that meant piloting with the actual young people and being like, what do you need? Yeah. What is missing here? And that started from me just being a school social worker and starting a GSA mm -hmm. at the school and being like, nobody does anything to support this. You just get a you just get a like a form that's like, here's how to start a GSA. And you're expected to do it yeah. with as little resources and time that school professionals have. Mm -hmm. That feels really unfair <laughs> and not OK. So we started with those pilots and really doing co-creation sessions of what is needed. So that's where our three programs came out. We heard from teachers and parents. Teachers have no idea how to work with pronouns or queer youth a lot of the time. So they're just causing harm right and left. Then you have the clinical folks. So knowing like what is happening right now, mm -hmm. the suicide rate with young people has been going up for like 10 years now. Yeah. And on top of that, queer youth are even more marginalized in those ways and more um, susceptible to the circumstances that create suicidal ideation and mm -hmm. depression. And then we have our mentorship program, which is really about social capital and making sure that intergenerational connections are an essential part because community is an essential part. And if we don't know how to talk to each other across ages and are not able to actually utilize those resources, we're going to be so much more weak apart than we are together. Also, a lot of folks, like, we don't have a lot of queer elders. Mm -hmm. A lot of them died. Mm -hmm. And I feel like there's so much grief in that and a, a very um, unique position for the queer community to really incorporate and look to the queer elders that we do have for direction on, like, what we have going. And then to take the newness and the creativity and the youthfulness mm -hmm. of young people to move it forward into a new direction and... I don't see a lot of communication happening both ways unless you happen to have someone in your family who you have that relationship with, you know, but it's definitely not built in in the way that other other pieces are. Yeah, we've talked uh, with the few alums that have joined us on this podcast. We've gotten to this idea of community multiple times um, in different. <laughs> Shocking. Right. Weird. Humans are social animals. <laughs> right. And that and that there's such an I feel like it's becoming more and more understated as a value that it's something that we need to. Um, not just aspire toward, but actively move toward. Yes. Um, and and we're not, I think, intentional about that in a lot of parts of our lives. Mm. Or we start limiting the communities that we're in because we write it off as, oh, we're busy or we're already engaged here. We find excuses to not yep. do what our body naturally needs, which is to be surrounded by people and to have that discourse. And then I think complicating that is we've created such nationally wise and even probably globally, we've created such very particular firm 
areas of what those communities believe, right? Mm -hmm. And we've created boundaries so that all of a sudden it's like, well, what if I'm somewhere between these lines and what does that look like? And so I love that we're starting to see, especially younger people, starting organizations in a space where we're putting people and communities first and we're realizing that there doesn't have to be a singular space that you land into. This episode is brought to you by Pigeons. They can remember your face. No, pigeons are like domesticated, right? fully domesticated birds who were literally like just kicked out because they started getting, you know. Gentrified. Gentrified. Basically. Literally. <laughs> and carrying diseases, yeah. you know, like got a bad rap for that. Yeah. And now they just all live outside. They're not supposed to be there. I don't know. It makes me sad every time. Do I think about picking up pigeons on a daily basis? I do. Maybe. You yeah. know. Will I do it? Who's to say? Today, no. Tomorrow, yeah. maybe. Honestly, luckily there's not that many pigeons where I live. There you go. So otherwise it'd be so much more tempting, I really feel. Right. <laughs> and speaking of birds, <laughs> one of the things that we have done. So last year, a big part of our work that is like totally separate from our actual programming has been our HR and organizational like leadership stuff and structures, which is all very different, functioning very differently as a as an organization. And um, one of the pieces that we come back to is Canadian geese. Sure. Um, and the way that Canadian geese all know what the formation is when they're flying, but whoever is in front, the goose that's in front, changes yep. all the time. And like this, you get shirt, tired and you can't be expected or you get to sick, have that load, or you right? don't know where you're going, mm-hmm. or you're learning, or mm-hmm. whatever it is. But the commitment is to the formation. The mm-hmm. commitment is getting this group of people from this group of geese, mm-hmm. <laughs> from one place to yeah. the next place. I think with the leadership structures that I was raised with that I, like, see all the time is, like, it's on that one person's shoulders. Mm-hmm. And there's maybe people who help around, but the winning win or lose is really on this person, the CEO or mm-hmm. whatever, whoever the person is. And how absolutely isolating and horrific that is for everybody involved and that it truly does not reflect how the world actually works, how humans actually work. Well, it moves accountability to a singular spot, mm-hmm. right? We always hear that, oh, the person on the top has to wear that because it's their leadership that failed in X, Y, Z. And yes, there may be some truth in that space because as a leader, you need to be aware of these things, but nothing Absolutely. rides on a singular person. And so then it really allows anyone but that person to shirt accountability in mm-hmm. that space. Mm-hmm. And then that that loses all of those opportunities to learn from your failures, to learn, to grow, and to grow together so that you're learning at the same pace. Because I love that analogy. Um, and I've heard it in different contexts before. And I, the part that I always stick to, too, is that there's always, when you see their formation, their formation stays tight. If somebody's like failing right. behind, they're going a little bit slower, everyone else slows down in that yeah. space, yeah. right? Not forever. We don't stay at that pace so that it's whatever. It's catch your breath, do what you need to do, and now let's start moving again. And so there has to be... You know, it's one functioning brain and organism and heart for where we're trying to get to, and we're going to take us all there together. Yeah. Um, And that's liberation. Right. That's what we're invested in Mm -hmm. as an organization. Our founding values are authenticity, joy, community, and liberation. Yeah. If we are doing things that are in alignment with those, we can can pretty, pretty much feel comfortable to know that we're fumbling our way towards something. Yeah. Yeah. That's really incredible. So in all of this work you've been doing now for about three years, a little bit more than three years, what has brought you the most joy in that space? I would say creating the world that we want to see. And that happens on an individual level with my clients where we're saying like one of the things that comes up a lot with the young people I talk about is um, climate change and basically being like, what do I have to look forward to in the future if... I'm not going to be able to have kids like this earth probably won't even be there at that point. So what is the point in me investing in hope? Um, and I think human beings have this amazing ability to turn towards hope, even in times that don't feel like that's the logical choice. Right. And oftentimes it's not the logical choice. I think the thing that brings me the most joy is watching people turn towards that, whether that's uh, at any level of the organization or at any point in my work. And I think in order to do this kind of work, you have to turn towards hope. Because, yeah, when you look at what we're up against, it's not Not on our side. It's like it's not a great situation um, to think about. And also, maybe it is. Mm -hmm. You know, this is maybe the perfect time to be doing this work. And all of the people who have come before us paving the way to get to where we are now. And, like, how exciting that that also is. It brings me a lot of excitement. 
and joy to know that we will continue to turn towards hope and we can hold each other in that process while not sticking our heads in the sand that everything's fine because it's definitely not. Like a flamingo. Uh, yes. Is it <laughs> no ostrich? Oh, dang it. <laughs> like an ostrich. Mm-hmm. So that was a test you passed. Yeah. Thank you. No, but I think, I think it's very much this idea of the resilience of hope, right? Like we're we shouldn't look to hope sometimes mm-hmm. <laughs> logically and yeah. rationally, but we do um, in the same way that, you know, we don't look to community in times when we know that we shouldn't. So I think there are, what I'd love to hear about this conversation, what I'm finding joy in and just speaking with you is like, you know, there are these really great inherent human characteristics and values that if we got just back to the basis yes. and realized we need people, we need hope, we need goodness, mm. we can solve a lot of the challenges I think that are coming before us. And I'm so glad to see that you're doing this work in the world. You haven't just studied it. You haven't just learned about it. You didn't read about it in a book. You took what you've had, your experiences, and you're putting it into action and you're helping young people. So thank you for doing that. Absolutely. It's incredible. I do also want to ask you just kind of about the state of things right now. It is a messy time to be a part of the queer community. Sure and there are attacks happening everywhere. Legislation's getting offered up all across this nation, um, whether it's transphobic legislation. In some cases, where there are states um, that are trying to go back on even same-sex marriage. Um, that's got to be a very compounding narrative, especially when we're dealing with young people and on this idea of hope, where we've said, like, oh, yeah, we paved a path. We've got a path forward. We know what we're going to do legally, legislatively. We know what we're doing socially. Now, all of a sudden, it's almost like the rug's getting pulled out from underneath us. Mm-hmm. I guess, how, how as just anybody in this community, how can we start having these conversations with people so that we're doing it with empathy and with care, but really addressing that these are very, very harmful conversations that are happening across this country? Absolutely. I think acknowledging that they're happening in the first place is, is important. Um, in one of our trainings, um, we talk about the fact that right now there's over 400, and I think the number is like closer to 430 now mm-hmm. or something like that, have been introduced mm-hmm. this year that have something to do with transphobia or um, anti-LGBTQ mm-hmm. like rhetoric of various kinds. And that 75% of all of the bills that are being submitted in this country are around trans mm-hmm. identities, which I was like, What? Right. 75% of all of the bills that are being introduced anywhere are about access to health care and, like, trans and gender-specific mm-hmm. issues. I just think about that and the sheer irony of that. Like, you haven't cared so long, but now 75% of our legislation, we're going to care about it. It's infuriating. And so part of that is also, like, how are you just not constantly angry? Yeah. <laughs> and oh, maybe you are. I am. <laughs> Yeah. Right. But so, so sorry to interrupt, but it is just, it is that just hypocrisy of you haven't cared and you haven't listened for so long, but now all of a sudden you do care. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Enough to organize around it. Correct. But I think that that, as much as that is also deeply horrifying, it also feels like the last grasp of trying to hold on to a world that's not going to exist in 10 years. Right. It just will not. And talking with young people really brings that to the forefront for me because they are already having these conversations and have been having these conversations for the last 10 years. Right. Like, they are not messing around with this at all. Mm -hmm. And I think watching Mm -hmm. how that is playing out is very scary to certain people. Sure. And so the backlash is what it is. I see joy as such a powerful way to protest, right? Yeah, but it's like, like of all of the things that you can steal from me, Mm -hmm. my rights, my ability to go to the bathroom where I'm comfortable— my ability to compete in a specific sport or not, my ability to feel like I can be safe walking down the street, dressing the way I am, holding whoever's hand I'm holding, you can't take away my joy. Yeah. You can't take away that I have a community of people who see me and love me so deeply. And there's literally nothing you can do about that. Mm-hmm. For me, that feels like investing in that space is the future. Like that is how we move the needle on some of these things. Because it's not, it's not new. Yeah. And it's also like, <laughs> I don't know. I guess I kind of want to say like, it's, I'm having trouble not cussing. <laughs> I think it's like by focusing on joy and really honing in on joy between people. Mm-hmm. So not only like myself, but how do I find joy in our relationship? Mm-hmm. How do I find joy in my relationship with the people who are on the street, who I have no idea about? What would it really look like to center joy, comfortability, mm-hmm. pleasure in these spaces? And how much better for literally everyone that would feel. 
I know the people who are really like going hard about this are deeply unhappy. Mm -hmm. And like the fact that they hate themselves so much that they want to limit me being able to express who I am authentically is just like, oh, you must be real scared. Mm -hmm. And you should be Mm -hmm. because queer people are tearing it down. Mm -hmm. There's the sound bite gold, right? (laughs) This episode where people are tearing it down. And building it up. And building it up. Simultaneously. Right? Two hands. What a talented group. Yeah. Thank you for that. It's just, it is, it's, it's overwhelming. And I think, you know, depending on where people get their news, how they get their news, how frequently they get their news, a lot of this conversation is getting buried. And to your point, it's 75% of what's 75%. happening in the legislature right now across the states and like, even in the Do we not have other things to focus on? Right. Like truly, whether I'm taking estrogen or testosterone? That really? That really? <laughs> people dying on the street? Mm-hmm. Trans women being killed at a rate that is abysmal? Mm-hmm. Black women dying in childbirth five times more than anyone? Mm-hmm. Like I just, there's so many aspects. Mm-hmm. Gun control? I don't know. Climate change, mm-hmm. truly, I could go on and on. Mm-hmm. There's so many things to worry about that it just feels so like, why this? Yeah, I feel like my my perception of it is because the feeling that we can put this under our thumb. Mm. We can't solve these big issues of climate change and this and that. No one wants to jump in that space because there's so many different competing factors. But we can smash this one down. I think they're learning real quick that there's a larger voice there. Uh, and especially um, with organizations like yours, that voice is getting amplified. And so it'll be an interesting few years. I think it's a, it's like this idea that sex assigned at birth and gender identity are different things. Mm-hmm. And if we can't start there mm-hmm. on some just really basic like gender 101 stuff, yeah, there is no hope for any mm-hmm. of the other pieces beyond that. Right. Because if you do believe that, that's an immediate impasse. That's like truly not my experience. Mm-hmm. And it is really hard to like sit there when somebody is saying something like that and being like, Your experience just doesn't exist, Mm -hmm. which marginalized communities experience all the time. All the time and have for years, right? Yep, forever. Oh, sorry. I know this got real deep, guys. So you left MSU Denver in your graduate program. You went and were a school social worker in that space. And then you had a decision. I'm going to start an organization. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I'm sure a lot of things had to happen in that space. But what? walk us through that. How do, how do you go from I have a 9-to-5 job, I've got what I need in this space, and I'm in, uh, in a very structured environment to, like, I'm going to blow some stuff up and I'm going to create something and I'm going to ask people to jump out on a limb with me. What Was there a precipice moment that you were like, I got to do it? Yes. Yes, and. <laughs> <laughs> I think it started from my experience of just being like, Okay, so my students need access to adults who have this kind of experience that they're saying would be helpful. So I go to Google and I Google all the mentorship programs and it's just, oh, okay, first of all, not very many. Second of all, the barriers to entry of that are just so long. The time commitments are so long and the student really has no control over who they pick as their mentor. So I was like, oof, I can't even provide this resource and be able to say, yeah, you're safe here. This person can support you in these ways, you know, like it's just moving people into other institutional harms, Mm -hmm. especially when you have multiple marginalized identities or even one. That's incredible harm happens from from those spaces, from young people who are really just trying to get access to support. So it started with that. And then I kind of was like, oh, why don't people do this differently and what other things are available? And then started looking at like what's available um, for clinical services and things like that. And I was like, oh, no, like <laughs> there's a hole there, too. One of the things is uh, that we say a lot is um, we want our healthcare to be affordable, affirming and accessible. Most young people don't even get one of those things. And if they do, it's like super lucky. But to have all three in one place is just almost unheard of. So uh, I didn't really know what to do with this idea, but I was really talking to like super my supervisor at the time. And I was like, what do I do with this? This is all this is all happening. And she was like, I don't know what to do with this, but there's this organization called Moonshot. And I think you should apply. OK, so I Googled that. Lots of Googling. Yeah, sure. That's the truly most of the journey. <laughs> Yeah, so then I uh, went through Moonshot, which is basically like an incubator for schools or programs within schools that work on different things in education specifically. And I was like, well, I want to do like a mental health thing. That's my expertise. That's my area that I feel most comfortable in. I'm not an, edu- I'm not an educator, right. a teacher in these other ways. Did I also teach? Yes. Mm-hmm. Did I do all these things? You know, but I 
was like, this is not the space for me. And luckily, they were really kind and taught me how to do a lot of businessy type things and supported me in feeling like I could be an entrepreneur or even try on that label of thinking about starting something like that. And then providing the like community and connections to move that forward, at least have a place to go where I can ask the questions, right. even if people don't exactly have the answer. So it really came from the students. And then I started talking to them. And in my GSA, every single week, mm-hmm. we would talk about the things that were coming up for them. And I would document that. And I would be like, okay, this is informing what we're going to do next. I have no idea what that's going to be, but it's going to be something. Then I went to this conference called Creating Change. It was my first time going to that conference in grad school. Mm-hmm. So I went there and I walked in and there was this ballroom full of queer people who were all dancing together, and there was, like, this little banner. The theme of the dance was joyous resistance. Hmm. And I was like, what? We can do this? <laughs> Activism can be fun? Oh, no. <laughs> like, never turning back from that. So um, then I just felt really invested in mm-hmm. seeing that and that, like, this is possible. And this is strength in a, a different version, a different iteration that I feel like was not centered and I had not seen. Definitely not live before. Yeah. Um, So that's where, like, the name came from and where the concepts came from. And then it was really just working with young people and them being like, we need this. Have you thought about this? Have you thought about that? At that same conference, there was, like, a mammogram van. And I was like, hmm, I wonder if we could do, like, a a mobile clinic. Would that be a thing? And, like, how can you really break down access to mental health care? Because in Green Valley, there's, like, very little public transportation to get to Denver Central. There was only a few organizations then that were doing LGBTQ anything. Mm -hmm thinking about them getting a bus pass to then go two hours to go see a provider on the bus when you're 13 alone, that's just not going to happen. We talk about things of accessibility in terms of like, well, I got them a bus pass and like Mm -hmm. I did, you know, there's lots of ways that people talk about that. And it's like, it's not truly accessible, right? It's not. And it's not centering those things. So first bought a school bus, then we ended up with an ambulance. And now that's our mobile clinic that we take to folks. But every idea has come from someone within the community, whether that be a staff member, a board member, a student that we work with, a client that we have. We just stay responsive. Yeah, you just have to be listening for the needs. They're right in front of you. Exactly. Right. And we can easily sometimes close our eyes to them, turn our head. But if we really are thoughtful in opening all of our senses to that, we can see the needs. And it sounds like you're addressing them. I do love in that story, too, again, that idea that you saw this joy as a resistance dance. And again, you saw it in action. And it's very much like you're talking about how you saw your professors practicing that. And so I think there's such a great lesson to be heard from that in terms of we have to see things in action in order to sometimes make it all click, right? We can learn, we can listen, we can hear, we can read. But until we see it, sometimes it doesn't mean anything, right? We're not putting the pieces together. So my hope in all of this and the weird hope that I look toward is that people that are fighting this on the other side for whatever reasons, it's just because they haven't seen it yet. Mm. And they haven't seen it in a space where they can put all the things that they've heard into one place where they can make sense of it. And so the more that we can be out there, uh, the more that organizations like yours can be doing the work that they're doing, the more that we're giving voices to people and showing and not just telling, um, we'll be in a situation that we can help people make sense of Um, the realities of so many people in this country. On that note, Mm -hmm. one thing that I would recommend and shamelessly plug is our case study that just came out Mm -hmm. called Resistance in Practice. It's available on our website, joysresistance.org. And it's a case study that the entire team made together. It outlines our staff handbook, which we created together, uh, which outlines all of our our policies of how do you actually do shared leadership? Mm -hmm. Like, actually, how do you do that? Because it's nice to talk about. It's hard to do. When you're in a situation, you need procedures to fall back Mm -hmm. on that are agreed upon by the Mm -hmm. people who are doing them. So um, there's that. And then we also created an equitable salary matrix, Mm -hmm. which is one of the most wild things I think that's come out of Joy's Resistance that was very unexpected. But that came about because I was a first-time executive. I've never managed anybody either, Mm -hmm. period. I've always been a worker. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I've just, like, never been in any kind of leadership thing before outside of sports. And so I was like, what do I even do with this? I have staff members and what is even going to happen? And what I was getting from other executive directors and other people who I was listening, asking those questions to and Google was like, yep, you just do like the comparisons based on other positions in the area. And you look at the nonprofit development centers yearly survey and you look at that position across a couple organizations, you decide on a range and then you negotiate with that specific person. 
blew my mind because I was like, this is how this happens? There is so, that is just a system rife with inequality. If you cannot articulate or advocate for yourself or don't feel comfortable or safe enough to in those situations, they're just going to go for the lowest number of whatever it is, which is incredibly devaluing. And then we wonder why we have all these power struggles between Mm -hmm. leadership and other folks because it's, yeah, of course not. One of the things that we do is uh, radical transparency. Part of our radical transparency piece is that all salaries are completely open. Mm -hmm. Everybody knows what everybody makes. And we built this matrix together from this concept from Vega Mala Consulting. There was a webinar that I found Mm -hmm. on Nonprofit Quarterly that I just happened to. On Google. (laughs) Yep. I looked at it and I was like, well, this is exactly what we're talking about right now. Let's just see what this looks like. And obviously there's a lot more details and things that went into that that you can read in the case study. But what came out of that was we have 12 areas of value that we decided as an organization bring value to the work that we're doing. So each person ranks themselves, and there's three levels to each of the 12 areas of value. And some of them are more traditional, like tenure at the organization. Mm -hmm. And then some of them are different based on experience. Some of them are based on your role specifically and how much risk you're taking on. And that alone, creating a different compensation structure was like, This is possible. Mm -hmm. Did it take a long time? Yes. And what do we have to lose? Mm -hmm. Because honestly, the amount of time that I hear people spending in HR conversations and conflict resolution and rehiring and training and losing people every like two years Mm -hmm. at most is way more expensive than doing it right at the front end. Not to mention the harm that your program and your your clients suffer when (laughs) when we just have turnover constantly, right? But I think, I mean, that's at the heart of all of this conversation is this idea that We have systems in place that we have just held on to for hundreds of years, and there's no real why behind them. And this is a great example of, right, the system didn't work for us, so we changed the system. It's not a hard solution, but it's a scary solution because when we change that system, all of a sudden we see the different ways that we start valuing equity differently, Mm -hmm. and that's scary for people that might take a tumble when other people are being lifted. But. At the same time, it's not a tumble. We're just raising, what is the, what is the saying, you know, all boats rise mm-hmm. uh, with the rising tide, you know, mm-hmm. something like that. All birds fly together. I, with, yeah. our, with our like system, the way it's designed, we all make within $10,000 of each other. Right. Period. Mm-hmm. Because how can you honestly say that one person's work is more valuable than someone else's work? Right. For any, for any reason. Mm-hmm. That is an impossible thing to measure. And it goes so unquestioned. Mm -hmm. And if it can be constructed, it can be deconstructed. Right. And queer people are at the front of the line on that one, Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. Because we have to be. Right. Right. Yeah. We've talked about, you know, the Roadrunner alumni base is growing. Um, It's growing exponentially every year. In fact, more than half of our alums have graduated just in the last 15 years because the institution is getting bigger. We have more program services. We're servicing more students. Uh, so we're now around that 105,000 mark, 65,000, 70,000 of which live right here. How can we help activate them to support your causes? How can we get them involved with what your organization's doing? What I'm going to say is slow down. If there is anything that I could tell anybody, I just read this book, Rest is Resistance. Trisha Hersey is the author. What it talks about in that book is that nobody can be creative and at their full potential when they're exhausted. Mm-hmm. And capitalism and the way that our structures are exhaust all of us, no matter what position you might be in at this current moment. And it's even worse for some people than others. So my, my thing that would be like help the world and therefore help joyous resistance <laughs> and everything that we have going on is slow down, read that book, and also think about how easy we are to control when we're tired mm. because that's just true. That's human nature. It's almost like they thought through the system where we want to exhaust you and then control you. Almost. Interesting. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I would say that. On the other hand, give us your money. Um, If you have money to give, we'll take it. Anything that we can do to not rely so heavily on grants who have a ton of very specific requirements and needs and uh, hoops to jump through in order to access those funds, like individual donations are always amazing. We're looking for a space right now. So if any real estate agents would love to hear from you and also support your queer friends. We are not okay right now at all. Yeah. And so go send a text, call someone, hug that person, read our case study, slow down, be nice, mind your business, you know? Be a human. Any of those things. (laughs) We could start any of those places and it'd be great. Awesome. 
Um, okay, we are finishing up these podcasts with rapid fire questions. Ooh. So we're going to do those all back to back. All right, so first question um, What is your favorite MSU Denver memory? I used to bring my dog to class. Were you allowed to do that? Who's to say? Um, but we just he, passed the animal policy, so back then it was probably fine. Great. Excellent. <laughs> yes, I definitely did. Um, used to bring my dog, and there's one, this one picture that I look back on from my grad school experience. That's him sitting in the desk there, and there's everyone else who's also in the space, and just feeling like that's such a it's such a cool thing to be so accepted in a space like this. Yeah, let's do some things differently. That's one of my favorite memories. Also, Zumba class with Kathy Phelps. Uh, if, if she's still teaching that, make your way down there. Wherever she might be. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. What does it mean to you to be a roadrunner? I think it means that there's a whole community of people that I have never met, will never meet. There's entire community of people who I do have and came from here. And there's people who will attend this institution who I will interact with in the future later. And it is a connecting point for other folks who I can more safely assume are aligned with the kind of work that I am doing and the kind of vibe that I have. At least in social work. I don't know about other places. That's awesome. And finally, uh, if you could put a billboard on campus with one piece of advice for all students to see, what would it say? If it can be deconstructed, it can be constructed. Yeah. I really think that that has been bringing me a lot of hope lately, too. They seem insurmountable, the systems. But it took us eight months with six of us to create a new compensation structure. And then we published it. And now every, every person that I've showed it to has been like, How can we iterate off of this? Mm -hmm. And that was just our best first try. Mm -hmm. It is imperfect. I have no idea how it's actually going to go. There are so many more questions than there are answers to this work. But don't let that stop you. Yeah. I think it's super powerful. Whether we're talking about systems, we're talking about big things that seem so hard to even figure how we're going to start chipping away to even back to the, our very first part of this conversation, talking about learning learning about ourselves and understanding who we are and why we think the things we think. And so there's a sense of deconstruction and deprogramming in that space. Even the things that we have come to believe are certain. Yes. Nothing certain, right? Literally nothing <laughs> except for dying. <laughs> Correct. Like literally, when you think about it, it is wild. Mm-hmm. Nothing. Mm-hmm. So why, like, why would you hold so tight? Yeah. Fear, right? Yeah, but it's so much worse on that. Correct, side. right? So find the joy, not the fear, oh, Jesus right? Jesus Christ. Yeah. Have you ever, have you ever danced in a, like, a group of people who are wearing 10-inch heels? If you haven't, you should. <laughs> the human body is remarkable, you know? Like, why not? It's, why not? Is that not fun? No, I guess. God, people are boring. <laughs> <laughs> Bria, I can't thank you enough for joining us uh, and for opening our eyes to a lot of things that are happening nationally, but uh, more importantly, the work that you're doing here very locally and for the state of Colorado and for our young people to really kind of take that first step, open eyes of other people uh, and provide the resources and support to our community right away. And so I'm super proud to call you a fellow roadrunner because that's really incredible work. And if only we were all doing stuff uh, as impactful. So thank you for that. We all could be. And we all are in our own way. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Bird Talk, special accommodation provided by University Advancement. Thank you to Ruby Matheny, Brandy Rideout, Heather Holzbauer-Schweitzer, and Andy Schlichting. Production provided by David Sharman, and I'm your host, Jamie Hurst. Keep running, roadies.